welcome to episode 47 of Tall Poppy, where we look at leading differently in business, work, and life. I'm your host, leadership futurist Tathra Street. This episode starts a series of interviews on women and power. It's about exploring our relationship to power and what it's like in today's world. Things are changing simultaneously for the better and for worse. Our society feels divided, yet there are people doing amazing things to bring us together to move humanity forward. This series connects us with some inspiring interviews to make a difference in how we think, act, and lead. Today, my guest is Michelle Gibbons, who's a change leadership and career expert. I first met her at the International Women's Day event at Leadership Victoria earlier in 2018. She's the author of Step Up and Career Leap, and her background in a range of industries, including politics, mining, and finance, well, you'd think she'd have a, you know, plenty of stories about sexism, but what's distinct about Michelle is her focus being more on what has come from standing up for herself. And her advice about how to deal with a new boss that undermines you is gold. We talk about women and power and what you can do to create a sense of freedom in the corporate world. And she has the best newsletter opt-in invitation I've ever seen. As I mentioned, this is part of a series on women and power, and she has a lot to say about how power works and how to work it. I hope you enjoy episode 47 of Tall Poppy. I'd like to welcome Michelle Gibbings to Tall Poppy. Welcome, Michelle. Hello. How are you? Good. So let's start with where in the world are you? Well, I am sitting in a hotel room in Sydney, and surprisingly, it's quite cold outside because you can see a tree blowing and it's dull so it's not the typical Sydney day. So but you you live in Melbourne correct? I do I'm a Brisbane girl by birth but I live in Melbourne. Yep. So what brought you to Sydney this time? I've been up here since the beginning of the week and I'm actually staying up tonight to see the Hillary Clinton speech. Oh wow exciting. Yeah I'm looking forward to it I think it'll be really interesting. Let's start with, can you just tell us a little bit about your work, specifically the work that you're doing at the moment, and then I'd like to get into a little bit about um, where you've been and how you've got to where you are. But what's important to you about the work that you're doing at the moment? The piece that really is important to me and why I do what I do is I see a lot of people with the world and the way it's changing, and they're struggling with that ability to cope with the rapid pace of change. And so I always say to people, all the work that I do is really designed to help people get fit for the future of work. So we know that the world is changing. We know that how we work is changing. And the more that people have certain skills, capabilities and competencies, the more they're going to be able to work out, well, what are the choices that I need to make to make sure that I'm future ready and that the choices that I'm making are actually deliberate choices that really support me, support my family and help set me up for the life that I want. Nice. And so what does that look like at the moment as far as getting people fit for the future of work? Is it, you know, seminars? Is it working with like workshops? What what does that look like for you? So it's a number of things. So absolutely there's workshops. So there's training workshops that I run, which are around the sort of career transition, career development piece and really helping people understand that actually it's their responsibility to manage their career. It's not anybody else's responsibility. Mm -hmm. And then there are core competencies around 
decision-making, negotiation, leadership skills, change leadership skills, understanding how to influence particularly in complex environments, and then facilitating workshops. So I do a lot of work with executive teams, helping them facilitate decision-making processes so that they are actually making good decisions that are going to help set them, their organization, and their teams up for success. And then working on the dynamic piece that they understand how do they as a team work together collaboratively to really make sure that they're getting the best outcomes. And, you know, and sometimes in a collaborative environment, People sit back and don't necessarily challenge each other. But I always say when it comes to decision-making, you actually need to create the right culture where people feel encouraged and supported to say, actually, I don't agree with you and this is why I don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. I want to go back to something that you said earlier. Um, you said leadership and change leadership. Can you just say a little bit about what the distinction is there for you? For me, they're, they're actually one, in some respects one and the same. But what mm-hmm. I often find is that leaders will see change leadership as something that they do separately. And I always say actually change leadership is a core competency of being a good leader, just as knowing how to make good decisions is a core competency of being a good leader. Um, but I do run specific programs on change leadership so that it really helps get the focus that it needs. Because what I find, and if I go back to my days when I was working in corporate, is often leaders would be, you know, leading a change, but they might have a change manager or a project manager working with them. And they would see the execution of the change as the responsibility of the change manager or the project manager, and that they would sort of play this passive role. And I would say, well, hang on, that's actually your role. So the execution of the capability might be coming from the project team, but it's your role to lead the change. You need to be the person who's playing that front-facing role where you're interacting with the team, where you're really supporting the team, where you're the one that's really delivering the messages. That's not the responsibility of the project team. And I have found that there are some leaders who try to outsource the change leadership to someone else because they don't feel comfortable having what they see as difficult conversations. Mm, yeah. And as much as I feel like there's there are specific things like, you know, whether you're restructuring or you're introducing a new system, that there's change initiatives that need to be led and championed and done first. Um, it feels like change is constant these days and that those core competencies around change leadership are needed across the board. Oh, absolutely. And I always say to leaders, change starts with you. Uh, it's not you looking around and going, oh, everybody else needs to change. You need to actually understand what needs to change in you. And there's two Harvard academics, Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy, and they do a lot of research looking into why is it that organisations don't change, you know, despite these sort of massive change agendas and transformation programs, the organisations don't change. And what their research shows is it's because the leaders don't think they need to change. The leaders think everybody else around them needs to change as opposed to taking that personal accountability and working out, well, if we need a different way of working, if we need a different culture, what does this mean for me on a personal level and how I lead and how I turn up every day? It reminds me of Patrick Lencioni's, um, you know, leaders like go first, you know, be, be the first one to, you know, champion this change and, and demonstrate that behavior. And when um, I was a an environmental consultant, sometimes we would go into, you know, big office towers and work with all the, the tenants to sort of change the 
waste practices and it involved removing the rubbish bin from under the desk and replacing it with a recycling bin. And sometimes whether it was a practice leader or a manager, um, they would often say, oh, you can take everyone else's bin away, but just just leave mine. And that was a real eye-opener for me and and was one of the things that actually inspired me to stop doing what I was doing and focus on leadership. Well, exactly, because it sends a really clear message that I don't think this matters to me. And so everyone else around goes, well, if it doesn't matter to you, why should I care? Um, And I always say, yeah, that whole concept of leading from the front. And I think if you look across the spectrum of society, that's one of the reasons why we've got some of the issues that we've got in society is because leaders aren't actually leading from the front. They're sitting in their ivory towers issuing edicts and expecting everybody else to change while they're not changing. And you often see that particularly in the political realm as well. And I think that's why there's such a disengagement with leadership and also with aspects of the corporate world as well is because people go, well, we hear you talking the talk, but we don't actually see that translating into anything that's tangible, real, or that we really feel like you're actually believing in what you're espousing. Mm, Absolutely. So let's go back into your experience in the corporate world and some of the the paths that you've taken to get where you are. And you've had a very distinct career path. And I think, you know, many of the guests that I speak to have very unusual career paths. Can you say a little bit about um, some of the the roles that you've had and, and what has led you to where you are? Oh, look, it's I always look back at my career. And I mean, I've I, I've loved what I've done. I've had good times and bad times. I always say to people that when you're looking at your career, sometimes the worst roles you've ever had are actually the ones that become really formative and pivotal in, in helping you go to that next role that is really that kind of step-up leap role. Um, but I just saw my career as an adventure. And I always say to people don't be held back by the expectations of others. And there's this whole sense of what you could do versus what you should do. And I look at the what I should have done and I kind of ignored what everyone expected of me <laughs> and just did what I could do. Mm-hmm. And it was by doing the coulds, not the shoulds, that I've really had an amazing career. And, you know, I, you know I've, I, I've moved a lot. I think I sort of counted at one stage, you know, I moved 12 times. I got promoted 10 times. I had nine different functional roles. I worked for six different employers. I you know, I'm a bit of a nerd, so I keep getting qualifications along the way. And for me, every time I was making a move, there was always a fundamental driver, which was this love of learning and a love of being challenged. And I found I was never seeking a promotion. The promotions came because I did good work. I knew how to build collaborative teams and work with people. And because I had this learning kind of mindset where I was always looking to do more. And I often say to people, you know, when you look at your job description, don't just define it by what's on the paper, expand it. It's because when it's when you're expanding what people are expecting of you, that's when you get all these amazing opportunities because people go, oh, wow, hey, she's done this, but she's also done all this other stuff and we weren't expecting her to do that. Mm. And hey, that's really awesome. And so, by the way, tap on the shoulder. Can you come and now do this? And certainly in my sort of last 15 or so years in corporate, I never applied for roles. It was always just a tap on the shoulder. Hey, I've seen that you've done this. Can you come and do this for me? And so my career in many respects was quite organic. I just focused on what I was doing, did it well, kept adding more value, and then a good opportunity would arise. And I'd look at that opportunity and go, hmm, is it going to stretch me enough? And I used to have this expression, which is a little crass. I used to say, 
if when I look at my next role, if it doesn't make me want to vomit a little bit, it means I'm not I'm not pushing myself hard enough. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about some of the industries that you've been involved in. Um, I'm particularly interested in in your in your experience in the in the mining industry. But what what were some of the other industries that that you like? Where, where did you sort of start out? So I actually started in um, in politics. So my first, you know, look, I, I worked at Myers and things like that when I was going through university. But my first real role was working for a member of parliament. So straight after I left university, I left Brisbane and drove my little car down to Melbourne and started working for a member of parliament, which was an amazing experience because you just get to see how power works in a different way. And now, I was very upfront with her because I'm a swinging voter. And I said to her, look, I'm not a card-carrying member of your party. Mm. And she's like, that's fine. Um, but I, I, I liked her as a politician. She was a really good local member and that was my thing. I liked her as a person in terms of what she stood for. Uh, and it was a fascinating experience to be a part of. And then she lost her seat at the election and what happens is you lose your job. And I could have stayed in the political realm, but I didn't want to be a full, you know, permanent staffer. That was never my ambition to kind of go into politics. So I then went and moved back to Brisbane and got a job in the mining sector. And so I spent a number of years working in the mining sector, including a time, I think about 18 months in Mount Isa as a 25-year-old, which I think kind of people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe you've moved out to Mount Isa as a single female. Um, but for me, I was going out there for the experience and it was an incredible experience in terms of the opportunity to learn and, you know, to deal with some really big, challenging, meaty issues. And I, you know, it kind of might surprise people when I say this, but I found the mining industry as a, as a female, incredibly liberating. I don't think I ever encountered any form of sexism or discrimination. Really? Pe- yeah. People listened to my ideas and my advice and I was still very young and maybe I was just really lucky in terms of the leadership team that I was a part of, but I was typically in leadership teams where I was the only female there um, and I felt like I could hold my own. Wow. So are there experiences that you had in your life that you feel led you to being able to to hold your own in a in a male dominated space, I've often wondered about that because it's hard to explain. You know, I was the youngest of four. I grew up in a very very smart family, and I was never intellectually as smart as my siblings. And so, you know, so if you kind of you know put us all in a test and we all had to kind of do an academic scorecard, they would always have done better than me. And I remember the whole way through school, every single teacher saying to me, oh, are you as smart as your siblings? Oh, you know, I had one of your sisters last year. Oh, she's so clever. And, well, I wasn't. Um, And so for me, you probably had two choices. I could have gone completely off the rails because, you know, all of those expectations can be hard as a young kid to handle. Whereas for me, it just drove me to work harder. Um, And so I've often said to people, I'm not the smartest kid in the class, but I'll be the hardest working. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's absolutely been my mantra through my whole career. Um, you know, I'm clearly, you know, have some degree of smarts because I've managed to do a number of degrees and a master's. But even I think that love of continual learning is me continuing to prove mm-hmm. myself. And I think I just learned through the years. I developed, I did a lot of work on myself in my early 20s, learning to like myself and be comfortable with who I am and learn to hold my ground. And I think that just filtered then through in terms of how I approached work. And I often find in the work that I do now, and it's probably the thing that I think is really hard 
to get people, particularly women, to get comfortable with is power. And I often have women who say to me, oh, I hate power. And I said, you've got to get used to it. If you say you hate power, you're being naive. Organizations, by their very nature, are power constructs. And understanding power and how it works is a really important part of understanding how you position yourself. And part of understanding power, it's not about also power over people. It's that inner sense of power, that I'm a good person, that I'm worthy, that I'm talented, and that actually this isn't acceptable. And I've had a number of occasions through my corporate career where I turned the tables on people because they were going to try and do something to me and they did not expect me to stand up for myself. And as soon as I, as soon as I did that, they were like, wow kind of don't now know where to go because I wasn't expecting the conversation to go like this. And I often say to, to people, when someone underestimates you, that's when you've got power. But we often hear about stories of women in male-dominated industries that, you know, do experience a lot of sexism or, you know, struggle to to sort of push up against the, the powers that be or the, the hierarchy. So, I mean, despite your own experience, what have you seen or witnessed or observed, whether it's our relationship between, you know, women and power or the work world? What did you notice? There's it, it's a couple of things. I mean, I would certainly say as I got more senior in the finance sector, there was unconscious bias. And I remember moving into a role at one stage where I've been working for this person they were amazing. They moved to a new role. When they were leaving, they they said to me, "Oh, by the way, you're going to need to find a new job." And I said, "What do you mean?" They said, "Well, the person coming in doesn't like women." I'm oh, like, oh, wow! Right? Wow. Okay. I went, mm, "Gee, um, I'm pretty good at my job. I think I'll be okay." And it turned out I wasn't. Um, and he very quickly went to the men in his my team and bypassed me. And the men in my team said to me, "Michelle, we don't know what to do. You used to lead this work, and he's coming directly to us." And I said, "Don't worry about it. I'll deal with it." And I did, and I dealt with it by managing how I exited that role. And I remember, and I can't for a number of reasons go into the whole sort of set of details, but I remember when I explained to the women in my team about how I managed it, they said to me, oh, my God, we wouldn't have done that. We would have just taken what he was offering. And I said, why? Why would I let him demote me? Why would I let him make me less than what I am? And so part of that internal power is you know, in this conversation, I managed the process and he ended up agreeing to something that he shouldn't have agreed to, to the point that HR the next day is going, well, hang on, he's, this is what's happening. I said, no, 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 this is what's happening. And they're like, oh, that's not what that's not what was supposed to have happened. And I said, well, that's what he's agreed to. And it was because I managed the conversation and I front-footed the conversation and I actually preempted where the conversation was going to go. So I had it before he was ready for it. And so often in situations like that is, um, and that's why I say, you know, in some respects, I can't explain where this comes from with me, but it is me going, I'm a good person and I'm not going to let you treat me like this. And so often what I, what happens, and I, you know, I did a session on Wednesday night and this woman came up to me at the end and she said, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm being treated less every role that I go, I'm being given less to do. And she went through a whole raft of reasons why she felt badly done by. And I said to her, but it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy for you. Because you expect this to happen, that's what's happening for you. You've written in your head that that's how it's going to work out. So I said, I said you need to look at yourself and look at the confidence that you've got to be able to position yourself and then work with that as well. And also understand, once again, how power works in organizations and who you need to be aligned with. So look, there is no doubt that there are a whole raft of different communities, not just women, but people from 
you know, different ethnic and religious backgrounds who are marginalised and um, and are absolutely discriminated against. And, you know, many, much of it can be unconscious in terms of the bias that's applied. Um, but I think the more individuals are equipped to understand themselves and understand how they can stand up for themselves, that also helps to balance power in organisations, which is why understanding power dynamics in organisations is really important, but also understanding choices. And I often say, look, this is not something that applies to everybody, but I also, you know, I see people, you know, this is particularly from my corporate background, and there's lots of people in corporate who earn quite a reasonable wage, but they live beyond their means. And when I, when they live beyond their means, it means they're trapped because they can't afford to leave because if they afford, if they leave, they can't pay the bills. And I've always, I've always lived under my means. And so even when I was, you know, earning a reasonable wage, I always made sure I had a bucket money that meant I wasn't trapped. And I'm going to swear in a minute, so I hope I'm allowed to do it. But I used to say to people, you need to have fuck you money. And the fuck, the the fuck you money <laughs> is this pool of money in the bank where it's not enough that you can retire on, but it's enough that gives you a bit of wriggle room. It might be three months, six months that you could survive if you walked away from a job because when you've got that, it gives you power to negotiate because people are expecting you to go, oh, I really need this role. And for example, you know, in one conversation, if I go back in corporate, when this person tried to bring someone over the top of me um, and I just said, well, effectively, when you do that, you say to everybody in this organization that I'm incompetent. So that's effectively making me redundant. So let's talk about how much you're going to pay me to leave. And he just sat there and as his jaw hit the ground because he, he wasn't expecting me to say that. Now, because I had money in the bank, I felt more comfortable to do that. But if you're really worried about losing your role because you know, oh, my God, if I lose my role, I can't pay the mortgage, I can't pay the kids' school fees, you don't do that. But when you've got a little bit of a nest egg, you you can do it. So it's for me, it was always about the choices that I made in my life that I never wanted to be trapped. My big – I always say to people, you know, you talk about a word that drives your life. For me, it's freedom. I need the freedom to choose. I need the freedom to be who I am. I need the freedom to be able to walk away from things, which is why I've always saved more than I've spent. I really like that. I haven't really thought of it in that way, that connection between economic behavior choices or maybe financial choices in terms of living, yeah, living beyond your means effectively traps you where you are and doesn't give you the capacity to, whether it's pivot or just make a different choice. And and whether it's because you no longer love what you do or because you've got people who are um, making choices that, that impact your ability to be who you are in your role. So yeah, that's, that's really powerful. I, it's not something I'd really considered before. That's, that's pretty cool. Well, and it's interesting though, because when you think about it on a practical level, and I always say this to people, your career is part of your whole life. And so you need to consider the career choices you're making in the context of your life and where you want to go with your life. And so when I left corporate four and a half years ago, I was walking away from a big salary. Um, and But my husband and I made the choice that it was the right time for me to walk away. I'd done what I needed to do. And I was kind of over the political environment, but I still wanted to be able to contribute, hence the reason for starting my own business. But you know, I took a massive pay cut. And I had people who said to me, oh, my God, how can you afford to do this? And for them, it just seemed so incongruous that I would walk away. And then, you know, particularly in the first year of business, you know, you're starting from nothing. And I didn't even know what the business was going to be or what shape or form it would take. I'd 
been on a meditation retreat and came home and said to my husband, I'm done. And he goes, oh, awesome. What does that mean? And I said, I'm done with corporate and I'm going to open a business. And he goes, oh, great. In what? I said, I've got no idea. I just need to go and figure that out. And that was the start of it. I love it. That's awesome. I'm going to move into my leadership questions. So I mean, what you're talking about is very, very much that as far as taking your own direction, you know, leading, um, leaping into the unknown, kind of creating it as you go. But from your perspective, what does leadership mean to you now that's different than it was earlier in your life? I think the thing that always sticks with me, and it's something that was said to me midway through my career, and it really shifted how I saw the role of being a leader. And I had this lady I worked for, and she was amazing, one of the best leaders I've ever worked with. And she said to me, Michelle, I get the work's important, and I get that you're ambitious and you want to do well, but the work is the work. And when you move on, how you do the work, people will forget. They won't remember. And in fact, someone will come in after you, do it differently, and perhaps even do it better. What people won't forget is how you made them feel. And that's the most important thing for you as a leader, the imprint you're leaving with others, how you make them feel, how you've developed them, how you've helped them get to where they need to get. And what I found is when I flipped it from a focus on, in effect, the output or the task to really focusing on them as individuals and what they needed, the work just happened. And it also built enormous loyalty because when you really connected with people on an individual level, they're really working for you. They're not working for the organization. They're working for you and they want you to look good. And because they want you to look good, they're going to do the work and do it in a way that's got extra energy and extra um, interest and sort of purpose for them as well. So for me, that has always stuck with me. One of the things I hear in what you're saying is is kind of well emotional intelligence and paying attention to feelings and how 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 people are left after working with you and that kind of thing. So I wonder is there is there anything that you can share with us about what you learned in that sense? Given you know, I mean, my experience of the corporate world is that it's quite emotion phobic. What you're saying is, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me, but it's very distinct from my experience with often how how the corporate world operates. Yeah, I think there's a growing realisation that people need to be emotionally connected to themselves and also to others. Um, And I always say to people, yes, I'm going to use the F word. And people think, oh, no, don't use that feeling word, Michelle. Um, (laughs) Because for some people, it's very uncomfortable in a corporate environment to talk about how they feel. And if you just even think about it from a change perspective, and I use a lot of the neuropsych um, approach when I'm dealing with change, and particularly David Rock's scarf model. And the reason I like that model is it says, actually, it's okay to feel and react mm. when things are changing. That's just normal. So it normalizes things. And I always said it to, to teams I'm working with, when it's normalized, it makes it okay to feel like this. But it then becomes, now that you know that, now that you've got the awareness, what do you do with it? How do you channel that in a productive, healthy way that helps you and helps the people around you? So for me, when you're talking about feelings and the awareness of how you're feeling, it then gives people that also that power to really go, oh, wow, this is how I'm feeling. I'm noticing it. What do I actually now do about it? And I've got a choice about how I respond to that. And I really like it. I was reading this book by this lady whose name I can't remember, but I was only reading it a couple of weeks ago, and it was talking about narcissism. And she was saying that we actually all have narcissistic tendencies, 
because what we think about when we think of a narcissist is we think of the person who it's all about them and they love themselves and they're not interested in anybody else. But she said often what we do is when someone does something that has made us feel bad or feel sad, she said we actually turn into a slight narcissist because what we are saying is you made me feel like this. Well, actually, not necessarily. We've interpreted what they've done and how they've acted and we've let them make us feel like that. So let's take accountability for our own feelings because we actually have a choice about how we take on board what that person has said or done and we can choose to ignore it or we can choose to let it impact us. And when you think about it from that perspective, you go, wow, actually we do have a huge amount of choice um, and yes, that doesn't mean the other person shouldn't be accountable for their own behavior and how they feel and how they think about things and what they say. People need to have care and compassion for others, but someone can say something and I can ignore it. I don't need to let it impact me. And ha- whereas often people can be really heavily impacted by what, I'll, what other people say. I'm curious about that because I think a lot of people, you know, for the most part, we are, our feelings and our, our emotions are, are subconscious and um, we are, we don't necessarily have choice well we don't experience it as having choice because it is coming from that that subconscious place and it's it takes a fair bit of self-awareness to be the observer and notice ah okay I'm feeling this there's an emotion emotional response occurring and okay actually I can choose how I respond like that that's quite rare in my experience so I don't really think of it as a choice in general sure there's there's that once that awareness is there there's choice but but before we are aware that there's choice. That's why it starts with awareness. So the more we are aware of how we're feeling, the more we can actually then choose what we do with it. And so if you think about so many people kind of just living in this sort of fog of life where they're just going through the motions and they're not actually sitting back and reflecting on how they feel or what's impacted them. Mm-hmm. And when you do that reflection and really stop and go, wow, how did I feel? Why did I respond like that? Mm-hmm. You And it is a practice. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but, you know, all and that's where things like also meditation help because meditation helps you slow down. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier in the moment to actually reflect on how you're feeling. Um, and I know for me that I can sometimes, you know, I often do work on a Sunday because it becomes a day where I can think about things and have clarity of thought. And you know, occasionally I'll get this little kind of like burst of an energy, but it's an energy with a nervousness attached to it. And I will always verbalize it and I'll go, wow, isn't this really interesting? Why am I feeling like that right now? Because sometimes I'll be reacting to something and it won't be right in front of me. It won't have been, this has happened and I've just reacted. It'll be something that's happened subconsciously. And I'll have to then dig into it. Isn't this interesting? I wonder why I'm feeling nervous right now because there's no particular reason. And often what I'll then do is change my state, meaning I'll get up out of the office, I'll go outside, go for a walk, play with a dog, talk to my husband, and then go, ah, now I feel better. Mm. So sometimes you can't explain the emotional reaction and that's okay too. I always say to people, it's never about denying the emotional reaction. It's about being aware of it, noticing it, and then working out what you want to do with it. Sometimes, yes, there isn't, there isn't a, a, any kind of logical reason for a particular emotion. But I wonder if, I know for myself, like I'll, I will notice, oh yeah, I'm feeling a little bit anxious about something. And then once I sit with it or meditate, then the, the answer often comes. It's like, oh, right, okay, I'm, I'm concerned about this particular aspect of, of my plan that might be a bit at risk of you know not going to plan or whatever do you do you find that it, it actually comes to the surface at times or like how does that work for you 
Uh, look, sometimes and sometimes not. Sometimes it will arise and I'll go, oh, that's what, what it's about. Other times it'll, and this is rare, it'll go, it'll go away and I'll go, still don't exactly know where that came from. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, I mean, I think that's the kind of beauty of the human body and the brain. There's still so much that we don't know about how it all fits together and how it connects and why we do what we do. Yeah. Um, and I always say to people, none of us are perfect. Mm. And even with the best of intent, we sometimes stuff up. Mm. And so it's about being kind to ourselves and being kind to others. And I think when you can be compassionate and empathetic um, to both yourself and also to others, then you do have that grace to be able to go, hey, they said that, but they didn't mean it. And it doesn't really matter in the whole context of life. So let's just move on. So clearly you've done, you know, you've done a lot of work on yourself. You've done a lot of that, the self-learning as well as the formal learning. You talked about being a learning, being a really big value for you. And I'm curious if there's a particular book or a resource, like a, maybe it's a TED Talk or something that you have found yourself referring most often to other people. Well, there'd be so many. As I said, I am a nerd. I often say to people, I should have the t-shirt. I love learning. Um, look, I really do. I love libraries. I love books. I mean, I, I do the whole Kindle thing, but I, there is nothing that beats a hard book. Um, and they're doing some really interesting research at the moment that you do learn differently if you're reading electronically to if you're reading on the paper form. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so I often say to people, all my kind of what I'd call textbook research workbooks tend to be hard copy because I dog ear, tag, whereas all my just fun reading is on the Kindle. Um, look, there would be a number of books. One of the books that was my book of the year about a year and a half ago was The Power Paradox, written by an academic at Berkeley University called Dasha Keltner. And he runs a Greater Good Science Centre. And they do really interesting works. They run some really interesting courses. Their weekly newsletter is worth subscribing to as well. But he talks about how power is actually conferred on us by others. So what happens is we do good things and because we do good things, people think, oh, they're a good person, they're changing the world or they're adding all this extra value, so we're going to promote them or we'll put them into office. But then what happens is that when we get those positions of power, the very nature of how we experience power means we stop being the person that did all that good stuff and so power eventually gets taken away from us. And his research shows that people who feel more powerful are more likely to cheat, lie, um, break road rules, and just basically not think that the rules apply to them. And so there's, a, there's really interesting stuff also with power and correlations with decision-making. And there was research that was done by the University of Southern California and the London Business School, and they found that people who feel more powerful – think that their decisions are more often right. Mm. And so it's really interesting because that's why I say your power is a really interesting kind of term in terms of how you define it because really understanding how you feel power and how you use power because if you don't understand that you've got power, you can make a whole heap of really, really bad decisions. So, yes, so that's one of my favorite books. I love all these amazing MOOCs, mass online open courses that you can do. So I often say to people, you know, edX and Coursera, I've done science of happiness course. I've done, you know, stuff on behavioral economics and all sorts of interesting, fun things. So for me, it's about saying to people, look at what you're interested in learning, then look to the left and the right of both of those subjects and keep learning broadly. So yes, there's a thing around expertise, but you also need to understand, have a breadth because if you are just a specialist in one particular area, I think you can become a bit myopic. 
and you miss what else is happening in different parts of the world, which are actually going to influence where your industry or where your sector is going. And, oh, God, I could keep going with books. When we think about being fit for the future of work and how we can make choices about what we learn and where we focus, what would you say that we need to pay attention to as far as preparing for the future? Fall in love with learning is my first message. Often what happens is people, you know, they might do a trade, they'll go to university or they'll do some qualification, they get that, then they go, great, done with that, (laughs) and that's it. And the whole thought that they'd even pick up a book or learn something new that isn't forced on them. So they might go, oh, gee, I've got to do compliance training at work or I've just been told that, I've, you know, work is sending me off to do X as opposed to go, wow, what am I going to do every single year that's helping my learning? And it doesn't need to be expensive. I always say to people, if you can set aside a little bucket of money or look at all this stuff that's free um, and set yourself goals of what you're going to learn that's going to help you. Uh, And one of the key things is really spending time on understanding who you are what drives you, what motivates you, how you respond to what's going on around you because all of the research shows that it's the, you know, what we used to call softer skills but all the things around emotional intelligence, leading, managing others, interacting with stakeholders, they're the skills that you can't automate and give to a machine. Um, That person-to-person connection is what's going to really distinguish people as we move into the future. Mm -hmm. So my last question is, what would you say to someone who's thinking about, they might be starting a business, you know, leaving their job and starting something and they have no idea what it's going to be about or or writing a book because you've done two of those in two years. Um, Or maybe there's a change initiative that, that they're really passionate about, but they're struggling with both those internal and external barriers. What would you, what advice would you have? So advice in terms of where they start. What I'm quite interested in is this idea that there are two types of barriers. One is the internal, like the mindset, or maybe it's even skills. Um, And the other is the external, like the circumstances, the structural barriers. So given we've got both of those to deal with, what have you done to overcome them? What advice would you have for other people? Persistence. (laughs) Yeah, look, it's and also it is those, what are the little things that you're going to do every single day? They're going to help you get towards your goal. Because we know that if we set these really big, massive goals, we just don't achieve them. But if we go, well, actually, I'm going to start exercising, and that means five minutes a day. Um, And that was the thing that got me into meditation, learning that I could actually just do 10 minutes a day. Because I had this weird notion that for meditation to work, I had to do at least an hour a day. And this meditation instructor said to me, where'd you get that notion from? I said, "Uh, no idea. Um, I think it's a common misperception, though. There's five, ten minutes. That's it. That's all you need. And I thought, how can I not find five or ten minutes a day? So I think it's the same with when you're doing kind of goals in the corporate world to break things down into bits that are manageable so you're showing constant progress because what often happens in a corporate world is we get so caught up with all this stuff. We're really busy spending all our day in meetings, got thousands of emails coming through. And we just don't prioritize the things that really matter. And so that each day, what is the one thing that you're going to do that's going to make a difference for you to achieve that goal that you've got? And then you just slowly, incrementally bite it off. And that's where the persistence pays off. Um, And also you going, this matters to me. Because often what happens is, you know, we'll set ourselves a goal, but it doesn't really matter. And I go, if it doesn't matter to you, you won't do it. You'll get distracted by all these other things that are going on. So make it personal. 
make it matter. Find the reason why this is going to be important and why you really want to do it. Fantastic. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Is there anything else that you want to say to people before we finish? I've really enjoyed talking to you. And look, my, my message is it starts with the kind of conversation at the beginning. Life's an adventure and you've got choices as you go through it. And I always had this no regrets policy. I just don't want to look back and regret anything that I've done. You know, have a bit of bravery and try things that you haven't done before. And I always say to people, whenever you feel a little bit uncomfortable, that's really good for you because that's your brain telling you that you're doing something new. If you are totally comfortable, you've stopped learning. And when you've stopped learning, you are one step closer to obsolescence. Thanks, Michelle. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. So much to appreciate here. I really like her candid nature and just saying what is. So much of this is really underestimated. It just seems simple, but... Yeah, I think Michelle has a lot to offer, especially to anyone who has a sense of uncertainty about where they're headed or what's next. The standout for me is about having fuck you money. And I totally get that for some that's easier said than done, but I really feel like it's about prioritizing a sense of freedom in terms of being able to put part of your earnings towards something something different. And it makes for a really good practice for saving. I know for myself, reading The Richest Man from Babylon was the thing that made a huge difference in my own practices around money. And getting back to what Michelle was talking about, one of the things that she was saying that she simply ignored expectations, did what she could with what she had. And of course, you know, when she said, um, when someone underestimates you, that's when you have power. Having just returned from a training on power intelligence with Julie Diamond, that really stood out. And I'll talk more about in the future. So back to Michelle. She didn't hold back on what she sees about where leadership fails. And that's really refreshing. To say that she's found being in the mining industry liberating, well, I didn't expect that. And saying that she didn't experience sexism, that was kind of surprising as well. It's not what you usually hear. And that's real, what I really like about her. She offers a unique perspective from her experience and is really skilled and, and clearly is able to manage some really challenging situations. And I find that really inspiring. And I also liked her advice from a boss that she admired about people remember how you feel. And that's something we've heard before, but I like the extension of it, the importance of being emotionally connected and the strategy of normalizing it. That's brilliant. So, you know, what to do with and how to channel how you're feeling and in a healthy and productive way and turn that into a power. That's really great advice. I enjoyed our discussion, as you can imagine, about um, the role of self-awareness and the experience of choice and how um, we feel or respond. And of course, the value of meditation and bringing clarity to our emotional processes. I'm finally getting back into my own practice of meditation, which is really nice. Um, yeah, it's such a great way to connect us to what's happening for us on a subconscious level, bringing that to the surface, having a sense of power with our emotions instead of feeling like we are at the effect of them. And yeah, sometimes it's a bit hit and miss and we're not always perfect and being kind to ourselves and others is a really, really important start. And of course, you know, short meditation, something that's manageable um, to help us get a sense of progress and to support persistence to sustain the practice. I really liked her stuff about lifelong learning and falling in love with learning um, and setting learning goals to help you get where you're going. That one I really appreciated too. Um, and around things like persistence and practices. So from a neuroscience perspective, this really helps your brain focus on what matters to you. So what are you taking to heart from this? Is there something in this that rings true for you? 
leave a comment or a review if you found this valuable. I hope you've enjoyed this installment of the series around women and power. There's a few more coming um, before the end of the year, plus a couple on racism and discrimination with some crossover, of course, because everything's connected. So stay tuned for more information about our workshop coming up in Melbourne on human-centered leadership that I'll be running in early 2019. You can follow me on social media to find out more or contact me through the website or simply through poppy at tathrastreet.com and check out the show notes for more links on how to get in touch with Michelle Gibbons, her books, and some of the resources that we mentioned. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you on the flip side. <laughs>